Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us today for the fourth podcast of the BSHR's Summer Disruption Discuss series. Um, I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Michael Mayo, a tutor in English literature at Worcester College, Oxford. Um, we're excited for what promises to be a fantastic discussion of the relationship between James Joyce's works and the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola and the insights this relationship can bring us. Before introducing ourselves, I'd like to introduce the BSHR and what we do. So the BSHR was launched in 2019 and is Oxford's very first student-run academic humanities journal. We aim to invigorate interdisciplinary academic writing in our community and to provide a pathway into academia for a new generation of scholars. Um, our summer disruption, our summer journal on the theme of disruption will be released in mid-September and we're planning a whole host of exciting events in Michaelmas, although they'll probably be virtual. Um, we're currently in the process of a redesign of our logo theme and website, down to the graphic design skills of our treasurer and events manager. So do check that out on our social media pages if you'd like. Um, so just to introduce ourselves at first, I'm Leela and I'm going into second year um, and I study English literature. Um, Michael, would you like to introduce yourself and talk also a little bit about your background and academic research? I went to a Jesuit high school and taught in a Jesuit school for a while um, that was founded by Irish immigrants. And uh, when, I, when finally I finally forced myself to read Ulysses, I recognized there uh, a sense of humor. And it wasn't just the references and the, the Irish history, which I was surrounded by growing up in Boston. It was a sensibility um, that I found disturbing and funny, which was something I remember from my Jesuit school. And so my hypothesis was there must be some connection, some sort of echo that Joyce was finding from that world that I found from that world as well. Uh, and that's where my interest in Joyce came from. Um, I was a school teacher for many years and I came to Oxford to do my uh, DPhil and studied with Jerry Johnson. And, now, and I taught at Exeter for a number of years. And now I work uh, mostly with visiting students at Worcester College, but I teach all kinds of, uh, I supervise dissertations, I um, do research on modernism of, of lots of different sorts. I just wrote a piece on Sacco and Vanzetti um, a, a couple months ago. So that's, that's pretty much my background. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, just a quick note, we'll do a Q&A um, in, in probably maybe at 3.50. Um, but if you don't want to speak, you can type your question in the, in the chat box and I'll happily read it out. Um, so, Michael, um, what is the relationship between Joyce's works and the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola? Um, how does this rela relationship disrupt our understanding of what is belief? Um, mm. And in this context, what would we actually define belief to be? Good question. Um, I have to say I'm fascinated by the topic that you've chosen for this whole series of disruption. So I know a couple of years ago, um, before everything broke, disruption was the cool Silicon Valley word about like uh, how the future was promising. Uh, and now I think we can see how uh, 
uh, sort of the narratives that we've been using to organize our lives have become disrupted. Um, I'm, that, that's how it feels to me living in 2020, and I'm sure that's how it feels to, to many of you, um, that the templates, narrative and otherwise, that we've been using to explain the world to ourselves uh, have broken down. And there's a, there's a presence of something else that doesn't quite fit. And we're trying to either adjust our narratives or deny that this newness has sort of entered the system. Um, and one of the, the key ways I think that we manage these narratives and manage this encounter with otherness is through literature, broadly defined, you know, books, TV shows, movies, uh, I'm sure music, I'm not an expert in music, but I'm sure these all forms of art help us mediate these disruptions. And what Joyce does for me is force me to interrogate what it is that I think I'm doing when I'm reading him. Um, it starts off on page one of the sisters in Dubliners, but by the time you get to, you know, halfway through Ulysses, if you're a typical reader, you, you, sort of, you, you get halfway through and you say like, do I even want to finish this? <laughs> there's so much input and there's so little output. What's the point of this extreme labor? Um, and we haven't even gotten to Finnegan's Wake by that point. Um, and for me, what he makes us do is interrogate our own practice of reading and to sort of turn around, the, the book sort of turns around and says like, what do you think you're doing here? You're halfway through a 734 page book in which there's no plot, the characters are rather opaque. Um, the stakes are, seem to be quite low. Um, and that sort of forced reflection on the labor of reading is a disruption. Uh, and it forces, at least me as a reader, to interrogate how I'm making sense of not only this book in particular, but all books and all uh, productions of meaning in the world. You know, whether it's a newspaper or a story from a friend or whatever, you're like you're, you go through the day trying to make coherence. Um, and he makes us interrogate that practice. And I think, I'll, I'll talk for a second about what, the, what Ignatius of Loyola did. He founded the Jesuit priests um, and he wrote a book called The Spiritual Exercises of Ignatius Loyola. Um, there were other forms of spiritual exercises you know, throughout history, um, but this was a, it's a short book. Um, it's it's a it's a strange book <laughs> um it's written not for the person going through the exercises it's written for the director and it teaches the director of the retreat um how to manage the retreatants uh that he's supervising they're all he um, they're catholic priests um and the, the spiritual exercises tell them how to sleep, um, how to eat, how to um, inflict torture on themselves. You know, don't leave any marks on your skin. Um, it's a brutal, bizarre, you know, quasi-medieval spiritual practice. Um, and one of the main 
exercises or the, the practices that he puts before his uh, retreatants is composition of place. And so the first, you know, spend an hour, okay, let think of the Last Supper. Spend an hour thinking about what you would see in that room. And you, you're on your knees alone, silently praying for an hour about what you would see. After that hour is up, okay, now spend an hour think, imagining all the smells of that room. And so the exorcist is on his knees, praying, thinking about what he smells in that room. And you go through each of the five senses to, to create this sensation, this sensorium of being in a real place, of embodying uh, a reality. And lots of people, Roland Barthes in particular, um, had a poor view of this set of practices. He said it was a neurosis machine that uh, it drives people crazy. And the whole point of the spiritual exercises is to control everyone's senses and to control their imaginations and control their beliefs. Um, Joyce's brother Stanislas also said that the goal of the Jesuits was to enslave the mind, which I always thought was kind of funny as a, a fellow Jesuit refugee myself. Um, but the key insight, at least for me, in thinking about the exercises is, yes, uh, Loyola forces you as a retreatant to engage every cell of your body in imagining this reality of, um, you know, the, the, the room of the Last Supper, for instance. But he also warns the director not to let the retreatant get carried away. And that is a form of irony that I find strange. Like Loyola wants to make sure that we don't become mystics and start to believe our own visions of, of these images as true. Um, Loyola's contemporaries, many of them were mystics, especially in uh, Loyola was Spanish and there were a lot of Spanish mysticists at the time. Um, Teresa of Avila, um, St. John the Divine, who taught that you could encounter God's otherness directly and have these mystical visions and that was truth. And Loyola, the difference with Loyola is he always said, don't get carried away. These things aren't true. You have to do this exercise and fully commit to it, but you can't believe that it's true. And so what he's asking the Jesuits to do is to believe and not believe at the same time. And this sort of stance that he's forcing these priests to go through seems to me a lot like what Joyce forces us to do as readers. You have to invest and believe, but every once in a while you have to unplug and, and uh, question what it is that you're doing. We see Stephen doing this repeatedly in portrait. Um, and we see, uh, as I described earlier, the experience of reading Ulysses for the first time, sort of getting invested and then getting kicked out of it and um, not being allowed to run with the fantasy that's being presented for you. So it's a sort, you know, we talk about modernism being um, ironic, fragmented, detached. Um, if any of that's true, I think this is how Joyce came to it himself. The, the Jesuits that trained him as a student um, very well may have given him these tools to be you know, both earnest and ironic at the same time.
Does that make sense? Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, you speak quite a lot about transference in mm -hmm. your um, Would it be okay if you sort of explained how that, like, on the significance of that and sort of where that term itself comes from? Sure, sure. Um, the transference, Freud said it was his greatest insight. And the transference happens um, in analysis, when you're in psychoanalysis, and the fantas your fantasies suddenly manifest in the room. Um, and the, the semi-comic example I always give is when the, um, the doctor's a male and the patient is a male, and they're getting really deep into things, and suddenly the patient like, yells at the therapist and said, you never loved me, mommy. And the therapist can say, this is very important, what just happened here. Um, and, and it's the goal of psychoanalysis is for the transference to happen in the room so that you can, you can sort of see the fantasies that have been getting in the, you know, that have been controlling the patient's life. And you can analyze it consciously suddenly. Um, and it happens in the room, but Freud also says it happens in every part of our lives that you have, that one has the transference with everyone that they meet. Um, that your own internal fantasies get screened out on everyone in the, in the world. I heard once that, uh, so we're, we have a script in our heads and we look for people to fill those roles. Um, and so we adjust the, the world to fit within our own fantasy. Um, and, one of the one of the pleasures of reading sort of a non-fraught text, I suppose. Like let's just say Dickens to pick an, an example. Dickens, you just read and run. Um, I know it's complicated, and I know there's there's tons more going on um, than I'm claiming here, but it's easy to do the transference with characters in Dickens. They don't sort of they invite identification. They invite. Um, the fantasies that you're putting on them. These are the good guys, these are the bad guys. I fall in love with this one, I hate that one. Um, and what Joyce starts to do, even in the sisters, even in the very first story, is to just sort of throw grains of sand into that circuit of the transference. And you know, in the sisters, for instance, oh, there's a very sympathetic young boy telling a, a, a strange, um, but sentimental and sweet story about an old priest who just died, his friend. Um, and often, you know, often your peripheral vision, you, you, something isn't quite right. And Joyce is making us, um, it's not a story about child abuse. It's not a story about sexuality, but somehow something has disrupted this easy um, narration, this 19th century, cozy narration of a, of a boy and his friend, the priest. Um, and what Joyce is good at doing is taking these um, standard codes of narrative and he'll just pull one string to see what happens. What happens if, uh, you know, old Cotter, the, a character in that story, who's an older man, just sort of makes weird insinuations that the boy doesn't quite understand about sexuality. Um, which leads to the question, if you're a careful reader, well, does the boy not understand it? The boy must be an adult by now telling this story. That's another bizarre layer that disrupts my 
my mode of understanding via the transference, by which I mean when you identify with, I don't know, Ebenezer Scrooge from Christmas Carol, um, you understand him because the circuit is quite simple to invest in. But if I try to sympathize with Stephen or with Bloom or with Molly um, or with the characters and the sisters or what have you, it doesn't work. Um, your fantasies still shoot out to the book to hope that it makes sense in a characterological coherent way, but it never quite works. And the book turns around and sort of says, what are you doing here? And that to me sounds like the director of the Jesuit retreat turning around and questioning the Jesuits own fantasies saying like, well, if, if this is what you think the supper room was like, where the last supper was, what is, where's is that coming from? Um, we need to analyze this and break it down. Does that answer your question? Um, so um, when you refer to be as belief, uh, the concept that you refer to as belief, um, would you say that um, what you're referring to is less of kind of a religious um, entity and more um, like the belief in your own knowledge, perhaps? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, the danger of working on this project, at least for me, was always um, people who work on Joyce and religion tend to take the line that, take a very conservative line, which was Joyce was, in the end, he was really Catholic and he never got out of his system and um, which I think is immoral. I mean, the guy was against the Catholic church. You let him determine his own, you know, belief system. Um, but what he makes us do is question the status of yeah belief as such you know even um we watch stephen and certainly bloom sort of lose their belief in themselves as individuals over the course of the book you know um even the idea that i am a person with a core identity like if if nothing else at least i know that i exist those things dissipate for them over the course of that book. Um, and the challenge is to be in that space, as I put it before, of believing and not believing, and sort of just provisionally going through the world, fairly sure that you don't know anything, um, but somehow managing to make that work. And for Joyce, I think that's an ethical position. That's why Bloom is, is a hero, is he doesn't really know much of anything. Um, part of it's because he's kind of I don't know, naive about science, about knowledge itself, but because he's, he's, he's humble enough to realize um, he doesn't know his wife, he doesn't know um, his friends, and yet he still goes through the day making it work and sort of um, pulling meaning together um, rather than trying to be the master of his knowledge, um, which you know, I talk about this with my students, but that's, that's the model of knowledge that we, that gets you into Oxford, first of all, um, and is an impulse that is hard to let go of. It's like, I need to understand, like, I need to know what this, this book is. I need to know, for instance, the short story, The Dead. Um, it might be an exam question. What does the snow at the end of the dead symbolize? And like hundreds, thousands of students have written that, I've written that essay like what does the snow symbolize at the end of that story and then there's no answer to that there's no 
there's no way to come to an end of what that might mean. And what joy sets up for us there is, is a real dilemma. You can either say, oh, it can mean anything, in which case uh, it's meaningless. Or you can say it means nothing, in which case there's, there's no meaning in the world. Like there's, there's something going on where when Gabriel's looking out the window at that snow, um, but there's no way to, there's no way for us to understand what it is in a, in a masterful belief sort of way. And there's no way for Gabriel to know what's going on at that moment either. There's just sort of this overwhelming moment of um, humility in your own ignorance. I mean, that's what, that's what brings Gabriel to the window is he didn't realize his wife was in love with someone else. Um, and so he's sort of encountering this um, obliviousness to the world and is really humbled by it. And it's what allows him, I, at least in my interpretation, um, the possibility for genuine love for her finally, that he can actually see her for who she is, which is not him. Um, thank you. Sure. Uh, does think, that answer your question? Yeah. 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 Um, mm. Pretty interesting, actually. It feels like um, obviously uh, Dubliners is so early on in Joyce's career, but it feels like um, each text that he creates sort of builds up in the same sort of ideology towards like going the whole way through, even from chamber music. Um, mm -hmm. And it's really interesting in your conclusion of your book, um, James Joyce and the Jesuits. Uh, you say, in the wake, the possibilities of a stable transaction or even an unstable transaction, like the depressive uh, broken circuit version of the transference have ended. Um, so I just wanted to ask why, why you don't want to talk about the wake in that book and sort of why, it's, why it seems like the end of this sort of, I don't know, like why meaning sort of dissipates completely maybe? Or... Mm. Um... I, I think it's, as you say, is that he gets progressively more adventurous over his career. Um, and certainly by the time, you know, by Oxen of the Sun and Circe um, and Penelope, he's sort of, I think he's sort of saying goodbye to representationality altogether and sort of snapping the last tether, chopping signifier from signified and just letting loose and seeing what happens. Um, so the questions of representation and belief are, I guess, moribund, at least in my reading, um, by the time we get to the wake. I, to put it like more bluntly, it's like I don't think my theory reaches that far. I think he's sort of done with that by the time he gets to the wake and then he's just playing. Oh, that's interesting, thank you. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Um, you say that Joyce and Loyola both force their readers to confront parallel crises of belief and language. And you refer to um, the Loyolan position a lot. Um, mm. what, what would you sort of define as the Loyolan position? Mm -hmm. um, it, that term refers to that position of believing and not believing at the same time. And as I say in the book, I'm not sure it's possible, um, but it's something that Joyce forces us to do. 
And I take the term position from Kleinian psychoanalytic theory, which uh, Melanie Klein, she, was a, she called herself a Freudian. Lots of Freudians say that she strayed too far, but that's psychoanalysis for you. Um, she said that there were, she wasn't as interested in drives the way that Freud is interested in drives. She was interested in what she called positions. And she observed, she claimed, um, that infants up until about the ages of six to nine months are in a paranoid position where they like just see the world chopped up in lots of different pieces. They're terrified. Um, like if, if a baby's hungry, it doesn't know that it's hungry. It thinks there's a monster present. Um, and then the, forgive me, but uh, the metaphor that Klein often uses is the, the breast. And she says, there's the good breast, the one that feeds me, and there's the bad breast, the one that denies me and makes me hungry. And that's sort of a paranoid splitting of the world into good and bad parts. And by um, six to nine months, maybe a year, the baby starts to integrate these pieces and starts to get the suspicion that nothing is all good or all bad, everything's sort of mixed. And so what was once paranoid schizoid position is now what she calls the depressive position. So, and, and these aren't stages or drives, these are just two positions that we go back and forth uh, in our whole lives. So as adults, we're either in the paranoid schizoid position or the depressive position. Paranoid schizoid is easier because um, everything makes sense. Those are the good guys, those are the bad guys. Um, and, but it takes a lot of energy to hold the world in place. It takes a lot of psychic energy to sort of split the world into pieces. Um, and the healthy mind can achieve the depressive position, which is disappointed. You know, like when um, there comes a point in adolescence when you realize that your parents are just people and they're not as great as you thought they were. Um, and it stinks and it's a hard truth to learn about reality. Um, but ultimately it allows you to have a relation, a real relationship with them as people. Um, and this, that kind of disappointment um, is good for relationships, um, good for mental health, and I think it's good for reading as well. That as a reader, you don't want to go in and sort of paranoidly organize meaning and sort of write your tutorial essay and say, like, this is what this book means, and anything that doesn't fit is not on my essay. Um, Instead, you want to be able to encounter that this is, everything's partial, everything's disappointing. Um, I mean, Ulysses is flagrantly disappointing. You know, when you finally get to the end, you're like, oh, Bloom and Stephen are finally together. Stephen, would you like to be friends? And Stephen goes, no, I just want to go home. The end, you're like, this, this is terrible. Um, that's at the level of content. At the level of form, Ulysses is disappointing over and over and over again. It never really gives you what you think you want. It forces you to make compromises. Um, and be in that position, the depressive position. And I use 
the, I took that as a metaphor for the Loyolan position so that if, if in this Jesuitish, Jesuitical way, you can be in a position where you are fully invested in, say, a portrait of the artist as a young man. It's a serious book that rewards investment. I find it more moving and more complicated every time I read it. Um, but also, so I sort of believe it, but also know that it's just a book that doesn't make sense the way that I want it to make sense. It's not gonna reward me in that sort of closure of satisfaction that Gabriel imagines he has at the end of the dead, for instance. No, 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 you will, it will always be a frustrating experience to read portrait. Um, and that's the way it should be. That, that's sort of a Jesuit kind of way of approaching the thing. Thank you. Um, I think, uh, as it's interesting, as an academic, how do you um, sort of cope with the, obviously um, psychoanalysis is not sort of completely uh, believed in as an academic study. So how do you sort of um, deal with that sort of contention? Um, I don't care. <laughs> uh, I teach it every year. Um, I teach a term-long tutorial series to visiting students um, called Psychoanalysis and Literature. And those are all, they're always sheepish about signing up for it because psychoanalysis is not cool. Um, but as soon as you start doing it, you see how it works and it's powerful. Um, if, if you do it in a mastery sort of way, and that this is where a lot, mo I think most psychoanalysis takes this, this wrong path where they sort of say like, well, Stephen Dedalus clearly had mother issues, so he has an Oedipus complex. And you're like, well, it doesn't get us anywhere. Like I knew he had mother issues. Um, that doesn't add up to anything. Um, but if, in, and that's, again, that's the paranoid, I can explain things. Um, claim to knowledge. Whereas psychoanalysis for me is not an answer, but it's a way of thinking about the things that cannot be empirically consciously explained. And literature is the best place to do that. Like there's no way to explain the ending of the dead. Um, it just is. Um, and I can leave it on the shelf and admire it like a pretty painting. That's one thing. But instead I'm interested in like, well, how did we move through all these desires and all this, these forms of language to come and we wound up here? I just want to trace the, you know, competing desires, the, um, you know, Peter Brooks, uh, the theorist calls it the erotics of form. You're like, there's something beautiful and attractive and even sexy about the way that literature is working here. I can't explain it explicitly, even if I'm like pull Freud off the shelf and say, in this case study, he proves that, you know, literature equals this. Um, instead, it, it allows you to encounter those things that other approaches don't. Are you, are you looking for an excuse to do psychoanalysis yourself? <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting, definitely. <laughs> um, 
maybe this might be a good time to broaden the discussion to our audience. Um, so does anyone have any questions that they'd like to ask? Um, I've sort of, I've not, it, the question has almost not quite formed in my mind, but I almost feel that's quite fitting for this talk. But what I was sort of wondering, I'm a little bit sort of was puzzling me is the the sort of use of Ulysses almost as an educational function. Like it's very interesting that you're comparing it to a text that was designed to instruct people. And like, if we think about Ulysses today, probably a large majority of people that read it are reading it through like the institution of a university or for a course. So I was wondering if, it perhaps it has taken on a sort of pedagogical function itself now in a sort of secular manner. Mm. Absolutely. Um, once it's canonized, as it were, um, it becomes an object of knowledge. Um, you've either read Ulysses or you haven't. Um, and you get to talk about it at dinner parties or you don't, or using exams or you don't. Um, and it thus becomes susceptible to that kind of mastery knowledge that I was talking about. Um, whereas, I mean, anybody who's read that book, you have to rethink what reading is. I, I've, I've, one of my best friends from school just finished it. Um, and I said, what did you think? And he said, I don't know. I said, that's how I felt the first time I read it. Somebody said, like, did you like it? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> this doesn't, I, 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 it's not done with my head yet. Um, and I do I think do. that it forces you to, maybe not. I mean, I'm, I'd be thrilled to hear from people who disagree with me about this, but like it forces, if you're gonna do anything with it, you have to invent it as you go. You have to give up your desire for conclusion, resolution, character i'm really i'm just obsessed as many people are with like the fact that you know in uh ithaca stephen sings an anti-semitic song to bloom and the book gives us the lyrics so that we can sing along i'm like this is I mean, challenging isn't the right word for it i'm like i don't know where to put this this doesn't sound like stephen to me um how do i make sense of this and it, it's going to require a new um, apparatus of reading on my part, I think. Does anyone else have any questions? Um, I wanted to ask actually, um, sort of uh, through this um, labor, of work sort of how do we come to a, a point where we actually enjoy the text kind of like what do we define enjoyment as when we're coming with such labor good question the i, I, I imagine my first answer is it'll depend on the person and it's my bad teaching way of turning around on you <laughs> to answer your own question. Um, but 
I think the humor in Joyce is essential because not only is it just pleasurable on its face, it's always fun to laugh, um, but it's it's funny in a like in a short circuit kind of way that where we would expect to get from A to Z as it were by going step by step, he'll just jump us there to and sort of break us out of the logical continuum that we've been expecting. Um, and that sort of surprise is joyful. And it's, you know, as Freud would say, it's a manifestation of the unconscious. It's like there's something present here that we can't name. Um, and I think only literature can do, I think only books can do that. I might be wrong, but um, the surprise at the the uncanny power that this thing can have over us. I mean, there's, there's the, the line that most students hate about Joyce, which is when he said, I realized I could do anything with language. Um, and a lot of students are like, oh, what an arrogant jerk. I'm like, well, you know, he was right. <laughs> um, and the possibilities that open up when you see that kind of power are thrilling. You know, maybe it's just like watching the Olympics. You're like, I can't believe that person can do that. Part of reading Joyce is that thrill, um, but also the thrill in engaging in that work and that labor yourself. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, does anyone else have any more questions? That's the hardest part of being a, like running a panel. It's like when people don't ask questions, you're like, oh crap. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was wondering actually, um, you mentioned something earlier about the signified and the signifier. Um, and I was just wondering, um, obviously people sort of say like, oh, he's trying to explore the unconscious in his work and things like that. But that always strikes me as slightly strange because how can someone explore the subconscious uh, or the unconscious mind when clearly they're consciously thinking about things? Um, so how do we sort of deal with that? That's a good question, um, especially since, you know, the in interior monologue um, is supposed to be, I mean, it is his great achievement um, that he didn't invent, but obviously he's spectacular at it. But I don't know about you, but I don't, th my interior monologues don't work that way. Like Bloom thinks in sentences and Stephen thinks in sentences. I'm like, I don't think it's sentences. sometimes. Um, but that kind of movement, to, if it's truly unconscious or riding on the unconscious, will not be able to be put in language in that way. Um, so the interior monologues, as it were, are sort of an approximation of what this human mind is undergoing when it's by itself. Um, so yeah, if you're gonna do the unconscious in words, it's probably not gonna look like um, Proteus, as beautiful as that is. Um, it's gonna look more like Finnegan's Wake. Um, and the, I, as I say, you can't really rec represent the unconscious in that way, but you can force it into action. Um, or let it erupt in in surprising places. That that I mean that's 
the definition of the of the unconscious is like you can't point to it um you can only sort of see it popping up in your peripheral vision um and so when uh i don't know in aeolus when steven's thinking about this isn't a good example but i'll use it anyway steven's thinking about shakespeare's second best bed all of a sudden steven goes you know, second best bed, second best, best of second best, second best. And he goes in this little loop, and then it goes whoa, and it goes back to the, goes back to the book. Like there's an eruption here that doesn't make conscious sense, um, but at least for me, it gives me great pleasure because you're like, I don't know, a book could, you know, babble like a baby and be silly, um, and that sort of disrupts unconsciously your circuit of interpretation with the book. I'm not sure that made sense, but there we are. No, definitely yeah um does anyone have any anything they'd like to add um i just wanted to ask um what kind i don't know i think often uh biographically joyce was not very happy with any of his work um like i guess maybe because of this difficulty of being able to to pick like the true subconscious um but obviously that's that's kind of impossible perhaps um so how do we like do you think that um his work is like a failure in that obviously you wouldn't <laughs> um <laughs> no but yeah that's a that's an interesting question. Um, he was proud of his work, um, famously prideful about his talent. Um, he's, I always think he's the nightmare student because so many students are like, "I'm a genius. I, you can't change a word of my work." And you're like, "Yeah, okay, get in line, kid." Then there's the one kid who's like, "Right, he's <laughs> correct." <laughs> like, um, so I would not have wanted to be his teacher. Um, I, I, I mean, he spent 17 years working on Finnegan's Wake at his like kitchen table, just happy uh, at being able to play and produce in this way. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure he had the goal of representing the unconscious. I think he was excited about, you know, to put it one way, to, to become more psychotic. Um, psychotic as in, letting the boundary between the ego and the id sort of disappear and letting the id uh, and the chaos of the unconscious more and more into one's work. And you can see the sisters is very, it's extremely complicated, but it's very cozy. By the time we get to Finnegan's Wake, he just, he didn't care. He was, he was like, psychosis is great. Hallucination is wonderful. There's no such thing as a character here. They just sort of morph into other things and oceans and trees and like he didn't care. Um, so at least in my understanding, he felt I'd like to think that he felt freer that that way. That's like that um that word, uh chaosmos from Yes. Yeah, the way, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um thank you. I think possibly uh we've got to the end of our time now. I'm really sorry for that. Uh, don't worry uh, yeah. <laughs> um yeah uh, but i'd like to thank everyone for coming um and also you can catch this um this talk on spotify 
if you'd like uh, where we'll be turning it into a podcast um so if you'd like to go back or share your friends um the spotify link or whatever um but yeah thank you so much for joining us michael um thank you really this is really great